Uh, it sounds like you're clipping a little when you're getting loud. I, I just turned it down. Okay. I saw that on the, on the. I think I had turned it up earlier, and then you guys said it was fine. So I'm turning it yeah. down a little yet. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm gonna, tr- I'm gonna, I'm gonna get excited real quick. Oh my goodness! <laughs> what, what were you thinking about when you did that? Uh, learning about Robert Palmer being a. Uh, <laughs> a rock critic. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the new book, Nepo Daddies, a history of the obscure parents of famous offspring. (laughs) Huh. Does that tie into today's episode? Maybe. Oh. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy. And I'm going to retune my guitar. Okay. How are you going to tune it? I'm sick of all these in-the-box players tuning their guitars to notes. So I'm going to tune mine to a number. 379 hertz. All my strings. Every single one, huh? Every single one. Huh. All 13 of them. Well, good luck. Thank you. I think when Lou Reed did that, he called it the ostrich tuning. Oh, it's already been done. (laughs) (laughs) By one of my favorites somehow, too. The world's a weird place, isn't it? Yeah. The world is yours. I think that ties in a little bit to what Sean was saying. We'll find out. But I am (laughs) co-host Peter Cook. And I feel that on these classic trio episodes where it's just the co-hosts, no guests, we need to come up with a an official name for ourselves. And I was going to propose that we become the Podcast Revelation Ensemble. Ooh. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's got some weight to it. I'm into that. Sounds pretty like serious business, right? Well, I mean, that's what we do. Nothing but straight serious business. Yeah, we're not freelancing here. Well, I've accomplished what I came to do now that Jeremy has scoffed. <laughs> this feels weird. I can't lie. This feels like we're back in like hardcore COVID. Oh, we we have to we have to tell our listeners what's going on. Yeah, there's like a blizzard going on here in Michigan. And Peter and I are not in the same room today, and it just feels wrong. Yeah, you may possibly hear the furnace, the old furnace in my apartment building in the background running nonstop because it's zero degrees Fahrenheit outside right now. Ugh. It's very cold. Apparently, Sean's in, having fun in the sun out there in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a balmy 32 out here. Wow. Well, to get our blood flowing, 
What did you bring today, Sean? You know, I brought a record that's pretty hot, pretty fiery, pretty intense. Something to get the blood flowing, just like you said. We are going to listen to the Free Funk record, Free Lansing, by James Blood Almer from 1981. Truly baffled that this is a cheap record, but I, at the same time, I bought one for $7 within the past year from Three Pillars Music in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Love Three Pillars Music. One of the best record stores in Michigan. You guys want to hear the first song off this real quick? Yeah, real quick. Okay, real quick. We're going to hear side A, track three, Night Lover. Yeah, that does not sound like a budget record. That sounds like some weirdo jazz that would be like $300. And Peter and Sean would be talking about how cool it is. And I'll have no idea what they're talking about. But it's not. It's not. It's a cheap record. There's many, many copies for sale on Discogs for less than $10. And it pops up in the bins very frequently. Which is kind of an outlier in the bargain bin record world. There's not a ton of free jazz. In fact, in the 200 plus episodes we've recorded, we have barely touched on anything approaching free jazz outside of just a couple records. But this is the closest we've gotten to a straight up free jazz record, I would say. Yeah, and it's a guitarist, which is not common in the free jazz world. Yeah, this is one of the first free jazz guitarists, actually. Yeah, it's an instrument that's less common in the free jazz world and always has been. So there's just a few early influences to go off of. And 
some of the biggest ones would be James Blood Elmer, Sonny Chirac, and not many others. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously a few, but... <laughs> yeah, that track there reminded me a little bit of the punk band The Minutemen, who fused some funk into their sound. And I wasn't too surprised to learn that the Minutemen opened a show for James Blood Ulmer in 1985. Yeah, because James Blood Ulmer had this very unique crossover sound that was one foot in the free jazz world and yet also very influenced by funk and traditional jazz and deep blues and all kinds of other stuff going on. He would often play during this time period with more like rock bands and punk bands and no wave artists, that kind of thing. So that's part of why we got this record on Columbia, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to that later on. Yeah. This is released on a major label. Major labels don't often mess with free jazz, but there was a, a brief time period where they thought maybe they could make some money off this. Maybe there was some appeal. Kids are out there making weird music. Maybe they're going to like this. Yeah, this is 1981, which in New York at that time, there was a strong no-wave music scene, which uh, James Blood Ulmer is definitely, he, he was definitely an influence on that genre, that subgenre, I would say. Yeah. It seems to be another one of those cases where he is revered and very influential to many musicians, but I don't know how many of your average listener and music fan has gotten into James Blood Almer or even knows that he exists for that matter. Yeah, I've been aware of him for over a decade at this point, but this is the first album of his that I've owned. And as I said, I, I believe I just got this within the past year. I feel like he's someone I found on a, a blog spot back in the day and had no sense that his records would be cheap. So, and then I started seeing them around, <laughs> not just this one, but a lot of his catalog and they don't, they're common and don't cost very much. Yeah. I'm not sure how long I've had my copy. Looks like I logged it on Discogs seven years ago, but I think I might've bought it at least several years before that point. I've been a James Blood Ulmer fan for kind of a long time now. I guess we haven't talked about this a ton in episodes, but uh, all three of us have some background in playing free jazz. In fact, all three of us at different points played in a band that I led called Forget the Times, which was guitar and rock free jazz crossover kind of thing. And uh, there was definitely some James Blood Almer influence going on. The first time Jeremy listened to this record, in fact, his first impression was that he thought it sounded like my guitar playing. <laughs> That's accurate. Yeah. And I I actually don't know a ton about free jazz as a genre past. I really like Ornette Coleman for some reason. And other than that, most of the time, I, I don't give it a deep listen. But yeah, hearing this, I was immediately like, oh, this is like clearly a thing that's influenced Sean. Yeah. And was very influenced by Ornette Coleman. Yeah. Yeah. He's thanked on the jacket, Ornette Coleman. And obviously, James Blood Almer played with him before this. <laughs> yes. And Ornette Coleman produced James's first solo record, 
Tales of Captain Black in 1979 and played on it as well. Well, I think that I have a feeling since we haven't touched on free jazz that we're going to have to do a crash course in the subgenre for this episode. Yeah, I kind of was thinking maybe we would do a little bit of a hybrid episode and we'll get into some of the bio on James Blood Almer, but we can also use this as a, a yeah, a 101 on free jazz. So who wants to take the question what is free jazz? Where did it come from? Not me. Well, I I, I think it came from Ornette Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> at least, the name at the very least probably comes from Ornette Coleman. I believe it started if I had to if I had to venture a guess about when it started, I would say the late 1950s is about the time that players started to stray from traditional jazz modes in their playing to step outside the box. Yeah, you're you're basically right. And I'm not necessarily a complete expert on this, but yeah, by the late 50s, jazz had hit a point where the the bebop and hard bop styles had gotten to a point where it was just so technically proficient and so skilled that people who were looking to push boundaries even further kind of had to go in a different direction. Instead of making it more complicated and challenging and technical, they wanted to just break the rules and kind of free the music and take away some of the boundaries that had existed before. So there's not just one kind of free jazz. People broke the rules in different ways or created different aesthetics out of it. But in general, it's kind of abandoning traditional rules of melody, harmony, time structure, all of that. So you have records like this where there's still a little bit of structure and there's a strong use of melody in this, uh, freelancing record we're listening to today and sometimes free jazz just goes completely free where there's absolutely no rules no one is trying to play in sync with each other it is just a chaotic beautiful mess but yeah the genre takes its name from ornette coleman's album free jazz which came out in 1961 and his uh album the shape of jazz to come was i believe 1959 so Ornette Coleman is one of the biggest names in the foundation of the free jazz genre for sure. Yeah. And people who were recording with him on those albums, like Don Cherry are very instrumental as well. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, a more major name would be John Coltrane. Yes. Yep. John Coltrane didn't dive into the free jazz quite as early as Ornette Coleman did, but Obviously, once he did, became one of the biggest and most influential players in that genre. Yeah. I don't know something strange about my relationship to Ornette Coleman. Yes. I, as a middle schooler, had a babysitter who would take us to the library. And I figured out I could rent a CD or borrow CDs instead of books and i wanted to know what jazz was because i had like <laughs> zero concept of jazz <laughs> so i got uh this album the cd of his live at the golden circle and took it home and just had my young mind blown by it 
And it took a while before I understood that that's like pretty far outside the bounds of, you know, what people think of as jazz. Yeah. And there's plenty of jazz lovers who just avoid the free jazz avant-garde genres entirely. It's, it's certainly not for everyone. It requires kind of a different style of listening and also just repeated exposure before you can become familiar enough with it. But it's difficult to just listen to your first free jazz record and be like, oh yeah, I like this. I get it. <laughs> it takes a little more effort than that. Yeah. For me, it was getting into Captain Beefheart's music and that containing strong influences from free jazz that opened up my mind to the genre. Prior to that, I had didn't really have any tools to approach it. And it takes time with this, these challenging genres. I, I have to think few people are fully immediately drawn to it the first time they hear it. <laughs> yeah. And part of that is just the lack of resolution or conventional structure and direction in music that your brain normally latches onto. So it's like you have to release control when you're listening to it and just allow it to happen, even though it may not make sense and may seem piercing and unlistenable at first. There's something there. Yeah, I think of it as you, it's like you listen for sound more than you're listening for a song. You're just like taking in the raw, just sound of it. I don't really know what yeah. the what a better word is one example I've used for people that people have found helpful before in trying to penetrate this kind of music is think of it as like the soundtrack to a movie that never existed, but like a weird movie. Cause if you listen to some soundtracks, even like soundtracks to like action movies, if you take the soundtrack out of context, it can be very strange and mostly textural. But when you have visual elements to go with it, suddenly it makes a little more sense. So if you're yeah. listening to some like bizarre music like this, just think of it as like the soundtrack to a alien world or something. And then maybe it starts to make a little more sense after that. I remember in one of the very early gigs as forget the times we were playing at the comet bar in Detroit and we were told that one of the audience members afterwards told us that we would be a great soundtrack to a terrifying film, like a horror movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's what we were going for, dude. It just wasn't what the audience at the comment bar was trying to hear that night. But <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. We were pretty hated. That was the best compliment. The only compliment we got that night other than the, uh, it was like a metal bar. And I remember the, uh, the guy who booked us said, well, here's, here's should be your takeaway. These people like offensive music and you were too offensive for them. So there yeah, you go. Exactly. It was a nice way to frame it. <laughs> I remember getting done with the set or maybe like a break halfway through and someone yelled at us, when's the tour boys. And I said, this is our tour. And he said, well then go home. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and that, yeah is what it's like being a free jazz musician. Set the world on fire. <laughs> exactly. You guys want to hear another song? Yes. Yes, if it's melodious and pleasant. It almost is. There's uh there's backup vocalists, so there's singing on this. It's almost 
a funk song, but not really. <laughs> this is a track called Where Did All the Girls Come From? A question that is rarely asked at any free jazz gig. Yeah. <laughs> True. This is Side A, Track 4. That song wouldn't have been out of place on the Captain Beefheart in the Magic Band record Clear Spot. Yeah, it's almost accessible. Yeah, and that's one of the more accessible Beefheart records. Yeah, exactly. Jeremy also commented on hearing some some Hendrix in there while we were listening and and that sounds like something that James Blood Almer has been frequently compared to throughout his career. Yeah, especially when being reviewed by rock critics who had less of a frame of reference from the jazz background. But yeah, people have called him the most inventive or most important guitarist post-Hendrix. Um, you can definitely make some comparisons in his vocal style there. Another guy that I'm continually reminded of when listening to James Blood Almer is previously featured Richie Havens, a guy who didn't get super experimental but also didn't make completely normal music and had a similar kind of bluesy rough vocal style and also played in open tunings Ooh. which james does yeah can you clarify did did james play like an open a or was it all a's as far as i know it was all a's or all the same note <laughs> at least <laughs> That's wild. I think sometimes maybe the strings were slightly out of tune from each other, but the from what I understand, it was decades of it being a complete mystery of what kind of tuning he was using. And then eventually he started saying in interviews that it was all tuned to the same note. Ah, I 
I just saw a thing that said he tuned to A, and I was like, like open A or like <laughs> what? <laughs> Which open A for our listeners would mean that if it was an open A tuning, you would strum all the strings without pressing down your fingers on any of the frets, and it would create an A chord. Yeah, and it's three different notes, not this all the same note on just every a. string. Yeah, and he did this interesting oops all A's tuning as a <laughs> a method of breaking free of traditional chord structure and just wanted to like break out of regular Western music and create something unique and different. So it's also part of his studies into what's known as harmonic theory, which is something that was invented by Ornette Coleman, who taught it to James Blood Almer when he was learning from Ornette Coleman in the early 70s. James is one of the most famous proponents of harmonic theory, which is something that there's not a great definition for. Apparently, Ornette was working on a book about harmonic theory that was never completed. I've seen various descriptions of it. But my understanding is that it is free jazz and that it's mostly improvised and there are not rules of playing in the same key or even sticking to the same key throughout the song, but there is still a strong emphasis on harmony and especially melody. Um, James Blood Almer considered melody to be the most important part of harmonics. So if you listen to some of these songs, especially the first one we heard, Night Lover, it's improvised, but you can hear the different instruments improvising melody and then doing variations on that melody, either as a call and repeat or together, or sometimes straying away from it and doing it in whatever way they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not free improvisation where, the, where there's just everyone doing whatever they want without really thinking about what the others are playing. It, there's definitely moments where things sync up throughout this record. Yeah. But then they're intentionally playing with the tension of letting things sync up and then starting to slowly pull them apart and then letting them go back together again. It's the like tension release of it that I find especially interesting in free jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with this being more in the funk direction, the free funk, it's a new level. You don't hear this funk this loose very often maybe a little of what eddie hazel was doing with funkadelic but overall it's a very unique sound yeah and there was a bit of a trend here in the early 80s of some newer free jazz musicians blending funk and free jazz james blood almer was not the only one to do that in fact ornette coleman was also kind of leading the charge on that as well with his electric band primetime that did some more high profile free funk records and later on in the eighties. And there was some other smaller musicians doing this kind of thing, or even, you know, the band that we talked about before material was kind of working loosely in this kind of funk experimental crossover world. It's been a long time since I listened to it, but isn't miles Davis on the corner kind of in that direction? Yeah. You know, miles was an early guy to go electric and get experimental. So there was, and, and he was very influenced by Sly Stone in that. He wanted to figure out how to make jazz that was also funky, but also boundary pushing. 
All right, so let me tell you a quick bio on James Blood Almer so we can understand where this man is coming from and how he got to creating this record. So first off, there doesn't seem to be a consensus on when he was born. <laughs> I saw multiple sources saying that he was either born on February 2nd or 8th, either 1940 or 1942. Not really sure. Uh, everyone seems to agree that he was born in St. Matthews, South Carolina. All right, Jeremy, you ready for some controversy? Oh, bring it. His father began teaching him guitar when he was four years old. <laughs> That's pretty borderline for me. Yeah. Okay. So here's how we did it. We can break down the method and see if this uh, fits your criteria. Jeremy, you're missing a an opportunity to say, well, I, it sounds like he's four years old when he's playing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel that way about this, though. I know, but I'm, okay, well then I'll play that character that hates on the <laughs> experimental music. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so the method was James's father would sit him on his lap and strum the guitar while holding baby James's hands so he would kind of get used to the feel of how you played a guitar. What do you think? Does that count? I mean, that sounds like what a an actual four-year-old learning music should be doing. Not yeah. like they were studying at the music conservatory at three and a half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they got bored with Beethoven, so they started composing their own music at age five. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing like that. It's more like pre-lessons, introduction to guitar lessons. Clearly his father wanted him to become a guitarist. Yeah. Not only that, but his father wanted him to be a gospel guitarist. His parents were a very strict religious family. They had no stereo growing up, and they did not allow any secular music to be played in the house. As a young James was developing an interest in blues and jazz music, he had to keep it a secret from his family. His father played in a gospel group, and James's first entry into the world of music was accompanying the group on guitar while touring through some of the local churches. So, as many musicians that we've talked about before, he came up playing in church. Thank you, church. Yes. <laughs> he left home at age 17, or was possibly kicked out of the house, depending on who you ask, and he moved to Pittsburgh, where he began playing with local rock and roll and doo-wop groups. And by the early 60s, he was playing with local soul jazz groups and sitting in with touring players like Jimmy Smith and Richard Groove Holmes, both soul jazz organists. So he's learning jazz, but he's also learning about funk and soul music. His earliest guitar hero was none other than the great Wes Montgomery. Hmm. Yeah, I think you could still hear that in his playing. <laughs> So there's a really interesting story about the time that James Blood Almer met Wes Montgomery. So he's still in this stage where he's playing traditional music. He's trying to make it as a normal jazz artist. His hero is Wes Montgomery. He's on tour with a jazz combo, and they're playing a show in Wes's hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana. And as luck would have it, Wes Montgomery strolls into the bar while James is on stage. And James is just like, this is my chance to impress my hero. He's playing as best he can, hoping that Wes is going to 
take note, maybe give him a quick compliment or something. Gets done with the set, like casually walks past Wes several times, stands at the bar next to him. Wes doesn't look at him, doesn't say anything, doesn't acknowledge him. And James takes this as an intentional snub and decides that he's no longer going to look for others for inspiration or encouragement. And in fact, not only that, but he wants to abandon Western scales and chords and look inward to create his own unique form of musical expression. Damn. (laughs) Wes Montgomery was very influential in this scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows if that was an intentional snub or what, but a pretty extreme reaction to that encounter. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're we're only hearing... James side of the story. Wes isn't around. To, who knows if he would have even remembered that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, you never know. You never know. But yeah, I mean, I can see why James took it that way. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like maybe it's the snub he needed <laughs> to yeah. go his, to find his own path. <laughs> it's that's, that's what it takes sometimes. Who knows? All right, so this takes us to the year 1967, in which James moved to Detroit and began playing with a progressive jazz group called Focus Novi, who had a residency at the legendary 20 Grand Club. Are you guys familiar with that spot in Detroit? No, is it still around? I don't think it is, but the 20 Grand Club was one of the main spots frequented by all the early Motown stars. So the 20 Grand Club had two levels, and they would book two different bands to play simultaneously. And for a while, while James was playing with Focus Novi on the main floor, the band upstairs was none other than the early incarnation of Funkadelic. So if you were a cool person on the scene in late 60s Detroit, you could have been rubbing shoulders with Smokey Robinson, seeing a young James Blood Almer and then go upstairs to see Funkadelic all in the same night. What a wild time. Wow. Proud to be a Michigander. Yeah. (laughs) In the early 1970s, James moved to New York City. The hope there was to connect with Miles Davis. A bar owner in Detroit had given him some bus fare and said, go find Miles in New York, tell him I sent you, and he's the guy that you need for experimenting with this weird music. He never met Miles, but instead, while he's in New York making connections, he met a guy named Ornette Coleman. Free jazz master himself. Free jazz master himself. So all through the 70s, those two guys were working closely together. Ornette was teaching James Blood Almer the ways of harmonic theory. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of recordings of the two of them. The sources say that... The band that he was working in was like an early version of the Primetime band that Ornette Coleman used for a while. But by the time Primetime was recording, James wasn't in the group anymore. He was going solo. He was on a roll. Time to go solo. On a roll. As I said, his first album came out in 1979, Tales of Captain Black, produced by Ornette Coleman. So he's got this mostly unique style of music that's highly influential. And as we said, it's connecting with experimental no-wave artists in New York. He's playing with the Rashid Ali Quintet, who was Coltrane's last free jazz drummer. 
He's making all these notable connections, playing with a ton of interesting people in New York, and puts out his first record with Ornette. And as a result, he gets noticed by the legendary indie label Rough Trade, who signed him with the idea that he would fit right in with some of the more experimental rock acts of the day. And because of this notable signing by this indie label, Columbia looks at it and was like, oh, well, if he's good enough for Rough Trade and he's so influential and everyone loves him, maybe there's some money to be made off of this free funk stuff. Surprisingly, that was not the case. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, there's some moments on this record where with the bass lines and him doing that chaotic guitar over it, it sounds like the experimental post-punk band, The Fall. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah. I think they were a rough trade band at one point. Mm -hmm. You could make comparisons with plenty of the artists around that time. I mean, I'm sure Sonic Youth was very influenced by this guy. I'm sure they played together. There was was definitely some connections, but like we said before, those connections don't always translate into having an audience of normal people wanting to buy and listen to the record. Yeah, I don't really see there being a big audience of normies out there ready to (laughs) scoop up this record. (laughs) Yeah. And yet somehow Columbia put out three albums for him. I mean, it was three albums back to back. He was on the label for, I think, less than three years. But you got this one, Freelancing in 1981, Black Rock in 1982, and a record called Odyssey that came out in 1983. Which, if you are interested in this music, but it feels maybe just a little too challenging, then I would suggest starting with his album Odyssey. Many people consider that the masterpiece, and that's one where... It's a little more subdued and traditional, and the free jazz elements are more there to kind of accent the pieces as opposed to being the main focus as it is on this record. But we picked Freelancing today because it's the easiest one to find. It's the first one that I bought. It's the only one that Peter has, and it's just a great record. And I just love how experimental and intense it is and the fact that Columbia put out a record this weird in 1981. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's one of those mind boggling things that I had never understood why his records were so common and cheap. You know, th- this is the way to go if you want that avant garde music without having to spend a lot of money. <laughs> yep. Agreed. How about we listen to another song now? Let us please. Yeah, what you got? You're going to flip over to side two. Track one, Hijack.
The thing I keep noticing the more I listen to this record and James Blood Almer in general is that his playing is so deeply funky. You listen to it and like the first few times you listen to it, it can sound kind of chaotic. Like he's just playing a ton of notes and they don't make sense and they're all over the place. But the more you familiarize yourself to it and the less shock value there is, it's like every note choice is funky. The rhythm that he's putting into it, it's like everything is so weird and funky, but not danceable. <laughs> it's like what happens when you take all of the funk out of a song, take it up to 11 and then make it so that no one could ever possibly dance to it. And that's what you get this record. Was there some wah-wah on his guitar on that one? Very well could be. He sometimes used effects a little bit. Wawa being a favorite effects of Jimi Hendrix, part of the comparison between the two guys. Yeah. Yeah. And Ron Ashton from the Stooges, who I, I think took some influence from free jazz. Yeah. A lot of those Detroit guys were very influenced by free jazz players. MC five as well. Yeah. Yeah. So who's on those saxophones and trumpets there? Well, first off, let's talk about the trumpet player. Yeah, let's do that. A guy by the name of Oludara. Y'all ever heard of this guy? Father of hip-hop legend Nas. That's the one. Ah. <laughs> there it is, Jeremy. Yep, you've been, there's the you've connection. Been, <laughs> you've been waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> the world is now yours. I was like, does James Blood Ulmer have a famous child I don't know about? <laughs> it was misleading. So yeah, there's a horn section on just a few tracks on this record. On trumpet, you got Oludara. You got David Murray on tenor saxophone, as well as Oliver Lake on alto saxophone. Both of those two sax players are very big names in free jazz from this time period. And they also have multiple records that can be found pretty cheap and are well worth looking into. Yeah. With the horns in there, it, with the saxophones and whatnot, it started to remind me a little bit of a Joe McPhee record. If you're at all familiar. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That one made, reminded me of like a psychotic Joe Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that too. <laughs> I should mention real quick, Olu Dara also played on the first material record, Memory Serves, from 1981. That's uh, the one with Sonny Chirac on it. Um, he also played with another early electric free jazz guitarist by the name of Elliot Sharp, who is mm. another guy well worth looking into if you're into this kind of freeform electric guitar playing. And then he also went on to play with show favorite Nona Hendrix. Nice. Yeah. Was Oludara mostly a session player? He, did he do much leading? Uh, I think he only had one or two records where he was the band leader, and that wasn't until much later on. Okay. Yeah, I got the impression that he was mostly a session player. Yeah. There is also a second guitarist on here. It can be kind of difficult to distinguish <laughs> how that's happening, who's playing what. But you got a guy named Ronald Head Drayton. That's funny. 
he's credited as Ronnie Drayton on the album, but I didn't see any head in there. Yeah, well, at some point he got the nickname Head. It, yeah, because when he joined Corn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he before this had done several records with the brilliant Edwin Birdsong who is a experimental disco artist from Philadelphia, who has a couple songs very notably sampled by Daft Punk. If y'all want to look into that later on, he also played on a couple records by Roy Ayers ubiquity. So not Mm. a ton of records before this, but uh, just a pretty phenomenal (laughs) group of guys to have worked with. And he went on to record with Melba Moore, Kashif and many others. Lots of, I'd buy that connections. Mm-hmm. Oh, he also recorded with Nona Hendrix in 1985. There you go. <laughs> Nona is everywhere. Everywhere. So the rhythm section on this is G. Calvin Weston on drums and Amin Ali on electric bass, who were two guys that James worked with often. That bass grinds on some of these songs. Yeah. It's like it could almost dance to it. If it was just like a little less disjunct. (laughs) (laughs) It's so borderline danceable. It's great. I love it. Now, I I was referring to it in my intro, but it was right around the same time that James Blood Ulmer started releasing music with the Music Revelation Ensemble, correct? Yes. But that's not the band on this record. Correct. Correct. So I should mention James Blood Almer is one of the few musicians we've covered on this show who I have had the chance to see live. I saw him at, I believe, the 2015 Detroit Jazz Festival. He was one of the like midday performers on the main stage and obviously one of the guys I was most excited to see. So I got myself a good spot on the main stage and there was... A few people who were obviously there and knew about him and some people who were just camped out on the main stage to see whatever bands were playing. And sitting right in front of me was this nice, normal-looking older couple. And about a song into the set, the husband leans over to the wife and says, Now, is he getting off time or is he just doing something jazzy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Detroit Jazz Festival is usually fairly traditional from my recollection. Fairly traditional, but they always book one or two weirdos. If you look at the lineup closely, you can see some legendary avant-garde guys in the middle of some pretty normal stuff. The headliner that year was Pat Metheny and Gary Burton, who were also incredible. No shade on them. (laughs) Yeah, Pat Metheny is one of the few players that that is often lumped into the super smooth jazz guitar playing that i have always just i've always enjoyed him and he can get he can do some weird stuff i've heard it he's done several weird records he did a record with ornette coleman called song x that's really good he did a record with another very very notable early free jazz guitarist Derek bailey and then he also recorded a solo noise album that makes this record sound like a parliament album (laughs) and that pat metheny record is called zero tolerance for silence check that one out if you want to 
have a fun uh, music trivia thing to show people. You know that smooth jazz guitarist? You know he made one of the craziest noise records you've ever heard? Yeah, yeah. It's like showing people Bob James Trio explosions. Yes, or McCartney too. If there's anything I've learned from this podcast, it's that the smooth jazz guys can actually rip. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> they choose not to, but they can almost yeah. always. As soon as you make fun of them for being too smooth, they're going to come out and just melt some faces real quick to prove that they can do it. Yeah, and I suppose I shouldn't say he's one of the only smooth guys that I can really enjoy because clearly that <laughs> time and time again, we've enjoyed some smooth ass players on this podcast, but he, he was just one of the ones that I initially thought of as being very much locked into that. And, uh, but I always enjoyed him doing that. And when he decides to go off the wall, Sean, you now have mm -hmm. maybe one of the most difficult tasks. Okay. I'm up for it. I have ever asked you about, I have no idea what it could be, but I'm still up for it. Count me in. What do you need? I need you to recommend me some similar albums to this one that are also cheap somehow. Interesting. Tough request, but I'm the man for this challenge. First up, I would like to recommend the Arthur Blythe record, Illusions, from 1980. Arthur Blythe is another very important free jazz saxophone player from this time period and that record features some guitar playing by none other than our boy james blood almer you can find that one cheap highly recommended arthur blythe second recommendation a philly musician who james frequently collaborated with and is an essential bargain bin guy if you're into this weird early 80s free funk crossover subgenre I'm talking about Jamaluddin Takuma and his album Showstopper from 1983. Oh, I can't say I know anything about that. Well, dig in. It's great. It's similar to this, but probably leans a little bit more into the dance world than the full-on fiery free jazz that James is laying down. And my last recommendation, the first material album, Memory Serves, from 1981. Ah, which we did. What was the album that we did by them? We did one down, one down the album after that from 82. So that's Bill Laswell. Yes, Bill Laswell. And the first material record was very intentionally supposed to be a funk free jazz crossover. The one we covered is a little bit less free jazz, but still experimental. But yeah. Like I said, the first one has Sonny Chirac on it. Oludara is on that one as well, as well as uh, George Lewis on trombone. It's a great record. Bill Laswell is a wow. Michigan guy who went to New York. I don't, think, I don't know that we addressed that he was from Michigan on the material episode. I'm sure we did. Don't go check. <laughs> <laughs> we did fine. That first material record also has Fred Frith on it. He's another notable experimental electric guitarist. Yeah. Well, I figured you'd get one, maybe two, but you provided the full three, Sean. I'm proud of you. Three? No one expected me to have three records. That's absurd. Yeah, going back to his influence on, or at least his similarity to the no-wave scene 
in New York around the time that this record was released, I couldn't help but think of guitarists like Arto Lindsay from DNA or Mark Rebo, who might be best known for working with Tom Waits, but did some pretty avant-garde playing as well. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that anything by those artists is anywhere close to being found this easily or cheap, though. (laughs) Not usually. So just get down with James Blood Almer if you're into that hipster out there music. (laughs) Yeah, and then memorize the names of the players on this record, buy any records that those guys are on, and before you know it, you're going to be a full-on free jazz snob. Yep, you'll be real popular at parties. (laughs) The most popular. (laughs) Where did all these girls come from? (laughs) That's what you're going to be saying over and over again. (laughs) Trust us, we know. Well, this was a great selection. I am happy to talk about James Blood Almer, he's, even though I knew his records were cheap, I still, my brain just had a block that he's someone we could even talk about. Yeah, it just seems like it shouldn't be possible. It's too weird. It's too good. How is it cheap? I got to say, though, we are completely failing at the uh, 70s smooth rock takeover this season. This is about as far away as that as we can possibly get. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. Yeah, our mission statement from the end of season four about season five being this (laughs) soft rock seventies takeover has not come to fruition and we failed miserably. Jeremy couldn't be happier about it. (laughs) Agreed. All right. Well, coming soon, we're just going to talk about little river band and uh, all that stuff, all the cheap steely Dan records. And I'd also like to announce my retirement. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for, for some reason, wintertime for me is is the time to bust out music like this and just kind of you you put it usually listen to it on headphones because no one else around you wants to hear this and (laughs) and just kind of lose yourself in the sound forget about all the living here in michigan with what jeremy and i are dealing with as we record this with the the zero degrees outside half a foot of snow it's you you need stuff like this to just forget the world for a little yeah. while. You're already miserable. Why not lean into it, right? Yeah. <laughs> a blizzard in your mind. <laughs> Love it. What did you have planned to end the episode on, Sean? We are going to end this with a positive note. Last song on the album, Happy Time. Well, there you go. <laughs> this one, I found it reminded me of late 90s early 2000s math rock a little bit yeah i could see that for sure maybe like the band oxes or some of the no wave influence stuff like Arabon radar yeah this this feels well ahead of its time yeah and we should mention that james is still out there touring and playing so keep an eye out he is amazing live and If you're struggling to understand this on record, I've found that the live experience is often a lot easier to get into for challenging music such as this. Yeah, I even felt that way when I finally saw Sonic Youth live, even after listening to their albums for a long time. I felt like I went away from that concert, like I got it more. 
Mm-hmm. That is often the case. When did you see Sonic Youth? 2004, the Sonic Nurse Tour, Vic Theater, nice. Chicago. Love that album. Yeah. I saw them open for the Flaming Lips. That was I'm a sorry. weird show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw Sonic Youth on what was, I think, their last tour for the last record that's not great, but they were still amazing live. One of my all-time favorite bands. And likely big fans of James Blood Almer. I thought you were going to say big fans of this podcast. <laughs> Soon. Someday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get Thurston Shout out more. to our boy Thurston. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Thurston, he has a few records he could come on and talk about, I'm sure, in that massive collection of his. Yeah, I sold him one record in his collection. Nice. What was it? Do you know? Uh, it was a blues record. I don't remember the name of the guy. But he, I was at, I was selling records at the Pitchfork Music Festival, and his band was playing. And then he went record shopping in the tent, looked at my stuff, and bought it because there was a song on it called "Sawed Off Shotgun Blues," and he thought that was pretty hard. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll we'll go out on that note. Here's "Happy Time" by James Blood Almer. You can always check us out at Patreon.com/slash I'd Buy That Podcast to get more content from us. And you can also follow us on the socials on Instagram at I'd buy that podcast. You'll find us on Facebook at I'd buy that for a dollar, or you can join the I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group on Facebook and post your cheapy avant-garde finds, (laughs) share them with the group. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. It's been a happy time. Mm